You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, welcome to the 405th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall with the last episode, we looked at some important decisions that were made by both Army commanders on the night of the 19th. Federal Commander William Rosecrans decided that the Army of the Cumberland would fight on the defensive the next day while Confederate Commander Braxton Bragg decided the Army of Tennessee would continue attacking on the 20th, since Bragg was still fixated on his original plan of turning the Yankee left and forcing the enemy away from Chattanooga down into McLemore's Cove, where they could be destroyed. And, as we said last time, Bragg, on the night of the 19th, not only decided to continue attacking the Federals the next day, but he also decided to divide his army into two wings, with one wing to be commanded by Leonidas Polk, while the other would be led by James Longstreet. Longstreet, coming down to Georgia from Virginia, was known to have arrived at the nearest railhead, and so Bragg expected him to reach the battlefield, well, any minute now. Bragg met with Polk at Army headquarters at Thedford's Ford about 9 p.m., It must be said that as far as his decision to split the army into two wings, if Bragg had extremely high hopes for Longstreet's contribution to Confederate success on the third day of the battle, his expectations regarding Leonidas Polk were almost certainly much lower. Polk's story will be familiar to longtime listeners of the podcast. By the time of Chickamauga, in fact since the early days of the war, Polk had accumulated a lot of senior command experience. Unfortunately for the Confederacy, his track record in command was mostly bad. Though the 57-year-old Polk had been a West Point classmate of Confederate President Jefferson Davis, he resigned his commission upon graduation in 1827 and became an Episcopal priest. He was highly successful in the church, rising to the rank of bishop, but that work did little to prepare him to serve as a combat officer in the field during the Civil War. Within days of the end of the battle here at Chickamauga, Bragg, in a letter to Jefferson Davis, would say of the Bishop General, quote, General Polk, though gallant and patriotic, has proved an injury to us on every field where I have been associated with him. 
Bragg's assessment of Polk begs the question, then why did he give Polk command of half the army for the third day of the battle at Chickamauga? Well, he had his reasons. No doubt, first and foremost, was that Polk's promotion to lieutenant general was dated only one day later than Longstreet's. And, before Longstreet's arrival, Polk was the second-ranking officer in the Army of Tennessee, behind only Bragg himself. Besides the fact Leonidas Polk was a friend of Jefferson Davis, Davis was also a firm believer in the policy of respecting seniority within the officer corps. As far as Davis and the Confederate military establishment were concerned, seniority was all-important. That being true, if Bragg bypassed Polk and gave command of half the army to someone else, there would inevitably be difficulties, including no doubt a formal protest from Polk. A second reason Bragg gave command of one wing of the army to Polk was that Bragg simply had no good alternatives. As we've already talked about on the podcast, when D.H. Hill came to the Army of Tennessee in the summer of 1863, Bragg could have reasonably expected much from him. Not only had Hill seen service in Virginia under Robert E. Lee, but he and Bragg had served together in the past, before the war, and got on well. However, within a few months of his arrival, Bragg's opinion of this present-day version of Hill had soured, and by Chickamauga, Bragg no longer trusted him in high command. In the same post-Chickamauga letter to Davis, in which he criticized Polk, Bragg also had this to say about D.H. Hill, quote, General Hill is despondent, dull, slow, and though gallant personally, is always in a state of apprehension. His open and constant croaking would demoralize any command in the world. He does not hesitate at all times and in all places to declare our cause lost. Hill was really the only alternative to Polk as far as wing command, since Hill was the only other lieutenant general with the army. But since Hill's rank was provisional, awaiting congressional approval, Bragg would be opening a big can of worms regarding seniority if he elevated Hill over Polk. And given his professional and personal opinion of Hill, Bragg certainly wasn't going to go to the trouble of opening up that can of worms. Instead, D.H. Hill would remain in command of his corps and report to Polk. In any case, after conferring with Bragg, Leonidas Polk left Army headquarters at Thetford's Ford for his own command tent near Alexander's Bridge. At that time, even at that late hour, James Longstreet still hadn't shown up. Longstreet's train had pulled into Catoosa Station outside Ringgold at about 2 o'clock on the afternoon of the 19th. Old Pete and two of his aides, Lieutenant Colonels Moxley Sorrell and P.T. Manning, had stepped off the train, expecting to be greeted by someone from Bragg's staff, but there was no one there to meet them. There wasn't even a guide to lead them to the battlefield. Sorrell summed up the situation by saying, quote, We were left to shift for ourselves. 
Longstreet, Sorrel, and Manning passed the afternoon, twiddling their thumbs on the platform, waiting for their horses to arrive on a later train. When it chugged into the station about 4 p.m., the three men quickly saddled up and started out in the direction of the battlefield. As they made their way toward Chickamauga Creek, they encountered growing numbers of stragglers and wounded. Wagons hurried past in both directions, and the steady roar of battle grew louder. Shortly before sunset, they found themselves, according to Sorrel's account, wandering, quote, by various roads and across a small stream through the growing darkness of the Georgia forest. It was well after nightfall when the three of them came to the east bank of Chickamauga Creek. When a picket challenged them from the opposite side, Longstreet replied vaguely, saying they were, quote, unquote, friends. When one of the lieutenant colonels requested the pickets identify their unit, they replied with a number of their brigade and division. Longstreet later wrote, quote, As southern brigades were called for their commanders more than by their numbers, we concluded that these friends were the enemy. Old Pete tried to bluff their way out of danger. Loud enough for the pickets to hear, he said, Let us ride down a little way to find a better crossing. The three Confederates galloped off into the darkness, sent on their way by several poorly aimed shots from the Federal pickets. Sorrel said, quote, A sharp gallop, unhurt by the pickets' hasty fire, soon put us in safety, and another road was taken for Bragg, about whom by this time some harsh words were passing. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. 
Bragg was asleep in an ambulance wagon when Longstreet finally arrived at Army headquarters at Thedford's Ford sometime around 11 p.m. In his book, This Terrible Sound, Peter Cousins writes, Bragg was awakened and he and Longstreet conferred. They talked for nearly an hour. Cousins continues, Bragg gave Longstreet a crude map depicting the primary roads and streams between Lookout Mountain and Chickamauga Creek, pointed out the general positions of the two armies, and explained the plan of battle and Longstreet's responsibilities. The generals parted shortly after midnight. Exhausted from his travels, Longstreet made no effort to find his command. A few leafy branches were gathered together and covered with blankets for his comfort and that of his lieutenant colonels, and the trio was soon fast asleep. Despite the fact Longstreet had arrived in the middle of the night, was completely unfamiliar with the battlefield, and went to sleep without talking to anyone in his new command, Sorrel later wrote that Old Pete actually thought his meeting with Bragg had gone well, since, quote, nothing could be simpler than the operation proposed for Rosecrans' destruction. The plan for that operation, which Bragg had also shared with Polk, of course, called for Polk's right wing on the northern part of the battlefield to initiate the fighting the next morning. Polk's wing would consist of Walker's and Hill's corps, as well as Cheatham's division from his own corps. With those five divisions, Bragg intended for Polk to kick off the fighting on the third day of the battle at quote-unquote Day Dawn, by which he apparently meant First Light, which on September 20th, 1863, would be approximately 5.30 a.m. The attack would begin at Day Dawn with Polk's right division and ripple down the Confederate line from north to south, brigade by brigade, until the entire rebel army was engaged. If Polk succeeded in crushing the Federal left, he'd finally fulfill Bragg's original strategy of severing the Yankee Army's link to Chattanooga and pushing the enemy south into McLemore's Cove, where he could be destroyed. As Polk's attack progressed south, Longstreet's left wing would add its weight to the assault and ensure the success of Braxton Bragg's plan. However, Bragg clearly intended Polk's attack on the northern part of the battlefield to be the point of decision. Polk's wing would initiate the battle on the morning of the 20th and crush the Federal left, starting the process of pushing the Yankees to the south, away from Chattanooga. Although nothing was committed to writing, Moxley Sorrell was right. The plan could hardly have been clearer. And earlier that night, Leonidas Polk, after assuring Bragg that he understood his role, had left to return to his own headquarters. When Polk left Bragg sometime after 9 p.m. to return to his own headquarters at Alexander's Bridge, Major General John C. Breckinridge of Hill's Corps was riding with him. At that moment, Breckinridge's division was marching north to rejoin Claiborne's division so that Hill's Corps would be all together again. Somewhere along the way to Alexander's Bridge, Polk and Breckinridge bumped into two of D.H. Hill's staff officers, Lieutenant Colonel Archer Anderson and Major A.C. Avery. What transpired between Polk and Anderson remains unclear. 
Polk later claimed that he told Anderson to inform Hill that Bragg had split the army into two wings and that Hill was now under Polk's command about the plan for the day dawn attack and that Polk wished to see Hill in person that night. In Anderson's version, he was told only that Hill was now under Polk's command and that Polk wished to see him that night. In any case, when Leonidas Polk reached his headquarters, he directed his chief of staff to draft attack orders for Hill, Walker, and Cheatham. The orders were finished by 11.30 and were dispatched by courier to Hill and Cheatham, while Walker was there at Polk's HQ, so he received them in person. Sentries and guides were established with small fires both at Alexander's Bridge and closer to Polk's headquarters to facilitate D.H. Hill's journey to report to Polk. The guides were told to maintain their stations until at least 1 a.m. Polk and Breckenridge talked far into the night while the latter's division completed its march and bivouacked west of the creek at the bridge. When the courier carrying the order to Cheatham returned with an empty envelope, signifying delivery, all seemed to be well. Expecting the other courier would also find Hill, Polk laid down to get some sleep. So did Colonel Jack, his chief of staff, who left orders that neither he nor Polk should be disturbed. Meanwhile, D.H. Hill had been making his way to Army headquarters at Thedford's Ford. He had remained in Winfrey Field until 11 p.m., debriefing Claiborne's brigade commanders after their night attack, then set out to report to Bragg. Reaching the vicinity of the Ford, Hill couldn't find Bragg, but he did encounter Lieutenant Colonel Anderson, who informed Hill that he no longer needed to see Bragg because he was now under Polk's command. Exhausted, and no doubt more than a little irked by the news he was now part of Polk's command, Hill decided to lie down in the woods to get a bit of shut-eye. Rising at 3 a.m., he made his way toward Alexander's Bridge, where he found no sentries, no guides, no fires, and no Polk. Thoroughly disgusted, he broke off the search for Polk's headquarters and set off to return to his own corps. In the meantime, Private John Fisher was riding all over the battlefield, carrying the envelope containing Hill's attack orders. Unable to find Hill, he at last returned to Polk's headquarters to report his failure. There, the only man awake was a clerk named McReady, who told Fisher that Colonel Jack had left orders not to disturb either he or General Polk. And so, with the fate of Bragg's morning assault hanging in the balance, The two privates followed orders and didn't awaken Jack or Polk. That meant, although D.H. Hill's command was supposed to start the big attack at day dawn, well, the night ended with D.H. Hill having absolutely no idea he was supposed to start the next day's big Confederate attack at first light. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is General James Longstreet, The Confederacy's Most Controversial Soldier, by Jeffrey D. Wirt. This is another re-recommendation, 
but we thought it'd be a good time to bring it up again, especially since last week's recommendation was for Bragg, the Confederacy's most hated man, and this week's could be for Longstreet, the Confederacy's most controversial soldier. We think you'll agree that's quite a bit of drama for just two book recommendations. I mean, if Bragg and Longstreet were alive today, they'd be guests on some morning talk show. Up next, we talk to Braxton Bragg and James Longstreet, the Confederacy's most hated man, together with its most controversial soldier. (laughs) Ridge, come on. Anyway... As always, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then, before the curtain comes down on this episode, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Evan, Thomas C., Mason, and Kyle H. And thanks to John M., Steve A. and Eric M. for their donations this past week. Yep, thanks guys. Those donations are always much appreciated. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Chickamauga. But until then, take care. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.